Welcome to The Examining Life, a podcast of the Arts of Liberty Project at the University of Dallas with Dr. Jeffrey Lehman, founder, and Dr. Andrew Seeley, executive director. Join the doctors each week as they draw on decades of devotion to liberal education to help you engage in a life of learning. All right, well, welcome to this uh, third episode of The Examining Life. I am excited today. We're going to be changing from the written word to the painted word (laughs) um, to looking and discussing uh, a work of uh, art. um, And we thought it really fitting to do the start with the School of Athens. Um, And one of the reasons is that we're both convinced that um, the fine arts, the visual arts, the music, um, drama are an integral part of the both our lives as as uh, our sort of intellectual life, our life of learning, um, but also really important for the foundations of education um, for um, for the young. So we want to make this front and center in our discussions. Now I'm going to be a learner this time. I'm I'm certainly familiar with the School of Athens, but have made no study of it. Whereas Jeff has. Uh, been a tour guide for many uh, people on many occasions in uh, in Rome in showing them the very uh, fresco itself. Yes. Well, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to just touch upon it. I suppose I could talk on and on and, and, uh, and maybe say more than what our podcast would have room for. But I thought it might be good to uh, just give a general overview of the painting and uh, and and point out some some figures and some clusters of figures. Um, before I do that, I thought uh, I'd like to follow up on what you were just saying, Andrew. Uh, that is, how ought we to think about the fine arts, performing arts, and other fields in terms of the the tradition, in terms of liberal education and the liberal arts. Uh, and there are differing opinions on this, right? Uh, some uh, have more of a purist approach, and they would say, uh, "No, it's all textual based. It's all so-called great books based In, intellect." It's, yes, it's, that's know. right. Mm-hmm. And and so what we're going to do is just focus on the the intellectual aspects, and and really it's tied very closely to text. Uh, and of course. Uh, Everyone will have text as part of that, but others will say, no, we, we also want to include other things like paintings, sculpture, uh, the reading of poems out loud, uh, plays, not just read in the book, but performed, uh, all of these kinds of things. And uh, I, I thought it might be good for us to just share some general ideas about how to think about that, how we see it as a, an integral part of of a liberal education. Um, If we think about truth, goodness, and beauty, which are uh, by all uh, believed to be uh, the centerpieces, if you will, the the three important things for us to be seeking after in a liberal education, it seems to me that um, beauty is an area where we have to avail ourselves and make sure that we're aware of this larger whole Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, of, so. of artwork uh, in its various forms. And um, especially in our own day, 
uh, it seems to me. Uh, in Dostoevsky's The Idiot, uh, he makes the uh, the the comment is the comment is made that uh, beauty will save the world, mm -hmm. right? And people have interpreted that in very different ways. But one common thread today is to say that uh, leading with with truth or with goodness might not be as rhetorically powerful, to say mm -hmm. the least, mm -hmm. as leading with beauty. Yeah, you can see that maybe that's the proverbs that we the proverbs passages right. we talked about last time, and the wisdom right. is is a lady. <laughs> Wisdom uh, beckons and calls and um, the, the, I think the, the, uh, there's, a, there's an attraction to wisdom as beautiful that's imaged in the wisdom literature. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, it seems to me that uh, we can reflectively look at works of art, uh, whether they be uh, visual or performing or whatever, and, and gain a great deal from them. And so it's in that context, and we'll have a lot more to say about this as the, as the podcast unfolds, but it's in that context that I'd like to take a look at the School of Athens here. So um, for, for those of you who have not uh, had the, uh, the experience of, of going to Rome and, and seeing this, of course, it's in the Vatican, so technically it's Vatican City. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, nonetheless, right there in the Vatican museums, uh, you'll walk from one room to another, right? And then you're presented with uh, Raphael's School of Athens. And uh, it, we, we have an image that is interactive on the Arts of Liberty website. If you, if you look at the galleries tab, and the very bottom of that, that section, there's an interactive School of Athens image. So you might want to pull that up and have it to be looking uh, along with us as we're going through this. You'll notice as you, as you look at the painting or the, the, uh, the, the image that on the lower left, there's actually a doorway, right? And I, I, I really love to point that out, especially for folks who haven't been there, because this is within the context of a relatively small room, and all four walls are uh, adorned with, with beautiful images. I'm not going to go into the details of the other three now. That is something that we plan to do in the future. But this one, the School of Athens, is, is so iconic for classical education, the classical education movement, and the longer, deeper tradition, I would argue, of the liberal arts and liberal education, that uh, it, it really deserves our attention. So let's start in the middle. Uh, in the middle of the, the painting, uh, just, just beneath uh, the center of the painting, are two figures. Uh, and if, if you've seen any part of the School of Athens, you've probably seen these two figures. There's Plato on the left, uh, using his right hand to point upward, and Aristotle on the right, appearing to point downward. Uh, a close look at these will show that they are holding texts. And Plato is holding the Timaeus, and Aristotle is holding uh, a book called The Ethics, which is most probably the Nicomachean Ethics. There are multiple works of ethics that that uh, are attributed to Aristotle. And uh, one way that this is often interpreted is that there's, there's this great divide between Plato and Aristotle. 
right? This is the kind of thing you hear in intro to philosophy classes. Everything is out and away for Plato. There's the realm of the forms, and that's where the really real is. And and then for Aristotle, everything is concrete. It's it's the world of our everyday sense experience, and they're ultimately at odds with one another. Uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that whether that be true or not, that is not the intention of the painting or of the the the, uh, the work of art here as it's presented. Because uh, if we look at the depictions of Plato and Aristotle in their context, they don't seem to be opposed to one another, but instead they're being united. So the vantage point, the, the vanishing point, I should say, for, the, um, for the, the work as a whole is between Plato and Aristotle. And one thing that's been said by, by many uh, critics is that that represents a kind of movement towards synthesis, right? A bringing together of Plato and Aristotle. And it seems to me that that makes good sense uh, of them within the larger whole. And uh, it also makes good sense of the way in which the different groups of figures are clustered around them as well. So in other words, this isn't a either Plato or Aristotle, but it's a grand image. And we've talked about order in different senses. This, this artwork right now, right here, is uh, a marvelous image of of order and the order that is inherent in a liberal education. Hmm. Uh, to point out a few more figures, uh, and Andrew, you can feel free to question or comment uh, as we're going along here. But uh, one area in the lower right in the foreground is uh, a group that are uh, clustered around uh, uh, a person in red, and that is Euclid, uh, author of The Elements and, and several other works. And he is using a compass to inscribe something. And then he has these different individuals that are around him. And uh, the, the standard read of this is that these different individuals represent different stages of learning. And to go into the details of that, would take us beyond the scope of this podcast. But just to note that Euclid, as a mathematician, is being presented as a foundational figure. Mm -hmm. And in some way, the stages of learning are all coming out of what Euclid does, right? So one of the greatest teachers uh, and a math teacher at that, uh, who, who is having a foundational presence. Another foundational presence, again in the foreground, this time, over toward the right, there's the gentleman who looks like he might be a little bit bored uh, that has his, his elbow on, uh, on, on the, the, the column there or the, 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 the flat table area, uh, and he's kind of holding his head up. Uh, this is typically associated with Heraclitus, one of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, and then behind him in the many colored uh, uh, piece here is usually taken to be Parmenides, uh, some will say Nicomachus, but given the fact that um, then at the lower part, uh, also on, on the left-hand side in the foreground uh, with kind of the white on bottom and the reddish uh, at the top and reading a book is Pythagoras. And so uh, it looks like here we have a cluster of the pre-Socratics that are uh, in a way providing a foundation as well. So 
a lot more could be said about this. Um, we also have Socrates. I'll point him out at least briefly because that's the way we started this podcast. Mm -hmm. So he is from the center where Plato and Aristotle are. If you go to the left and you see a, a gentleman uh, that's in dark green and he's holding his hands out. Um, a little bowling on a little bowling. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's that's Socrates. And, and he's teaching someone something. We, we can go into the details of that at another time. But this this image uh, taken as a whole is a representation of that tradition that we're talking about in the examining life and the way in which the disciplines come together. We could also talk about astronomy and, and other elements in, in this, in this photo or this, this image. Um, they're all coming together to create one, one ordered whole. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that just, seems to be the central. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add, um, to add a reference to the other walls of the signatura, yes. Yes. we have um, we have a disputation on the Eucharist. We have um, law and and poetry, right? So right. this is one part of that unity that that encompasses all those other things in Raphael's presentation. Exactly, exactly. And so the these these individual works can be read themselves, but then they can also be read together. And we'll, we'll definitely come back mm -hmm. to that. I, um, I really love just the, uh, looking at it, um, as an image of active learning, even without knowing mm -hmm. who the figures are, the, the excitement with which, um, each of the clusters is focused on, on, um, on what particularly looks like, um, often just what one person is doing, everybody else is looking around that and, and even um, commenting one another about it. So the, you mentioned Euclid, uh, he's got his cluster. Um, you have Socrates with a group around him. And then, you know, even just up in the right, in the upper right by that column, there's somebody mm -hmm. scribbling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's like right. His hair in a breeze, I don't know where the breeze <laughs> is coming from. But then there's another fellow mm -hmm. leaning over, you know, looking over his shoulder. Um, the intensity of of excitement about learning, and then also the the way in which it's bringing these people together is is um, uh, sp that speaks to me dramatically. I think. Oh yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. And this is one of those beautiful instances where uh, two different notions of of motion are coming into play. Right? Thomas talks about this quite a bit. You know, he'll say that local motion is the first type of motion that we know mm -hmm. and the most mm -hmm. obvious and so forth. But then by a kind of extension, we can talk about thought as motion, mm -hmm. right? We have the moving of the right. mind. Yeah. And, and so what here we have is uh, in a certain way, the depiction of that intellectual motion in a very concrete uh, sensory way, mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's and beautiful living, to see. Right? Exactly. Is, it's not, it's not just a symbolic representation. It's actually in cap capturing them in the life moment of the, of the intellectual excitement. Um, exactly. The, uh, uh, I think that, um, as teachers, one of the things that we both not only love, but which, uh, makes us feel like we were succeeding is when we, uh, we encounter our students after class in a setting that's, this is, this is not, they, they don't have that's to, these right. people in this school don't have to be there. They're, they're not getting any degree from this. Um, so what, uh, when your students are engaged in intellectual conversation uh, outside of class um, or 
or uh, outside of the class times, that's when you really feel like, okay, we've made some real uh, headway here. Um, and I think that, that Raphael captures that, that aspect of the life of learning really powerfully. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, so let, uh, I, I, thinking about the um, art paintings um, mm -hmm. and their role in the life of learning, um, two things I'd uh, come to mind, and both of them I think are illustrated by this School of Athens. Um, one is just the, uh, the attention to detail. So mm -hmm. you've been showing us how, just a, even just the beginning of how Raphael uh, thought through and and accounted for sort of every aspect of this painting, mm -hmm. and um, I think the in the in the ethics when Aristotle talks about wisdom, it seems like the the maybe the first place that the word was used was to apply to artists to mm -hmm. the architect, the the wise one was the architect who for whom everything in the building was understood to have its role nothing was a throwaway um so that the this is a art high high portrait art is and, and architecture are instances of wisdom at least in an analogous sense this mm -hmm. multifaceted but all part of one program that uh that we can immerse ourselves into and they it attracts the details attract you um, I, I, I think that teachers should really, and, and uh, uh, even in your homes, think about the art that you have. Um, a lot of what you want is uh, art that's going to attract students' attention, and they're going to, over the course of a year, they'll keep looking back at it because they'll see more and more, more things. Um, and then one final thought about it is, you you mentioned that the I don't know the way of beauty is um, can be seen as a rhetorical move mm -hmm. for to draw people into intellectual life. Mm -hmm. um, I also think it's true that those who find only the argumentative, logical, um, abstract as uh, as sort of the the sum and substance of the intellectual life are not really f experiencing it fully. The intellectual life properly also engages the emotions and the sensations. It, it, uh, it pours out into them. So um, learning to respond properly to works of art like this is, uh, is an essential, I think, completion of and uh, healthy integration of the intellectual life. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. And in, in, in talking about it as a good rhetorical move, uh, I, I think that's right. But I, I do think more needs to be said. And I, I think uh, I would agree with the way you're going with it, which is uh, recall the way we started talking about the fully human life. Well, the fully human life is an embodied life. It's a life that knowledge begins in the senses. And it's a life that involves passions as a, a necessary natural part mm -hmm. of our existence. So, so part of what we do when we appreciate beautiful things is we incorporate the entirety of ourselves 
in in that experience. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that's part of the perfection that we're looking for, mm -hmm. right? Not just getting the right syllogisms and conclusions in your head and even the right principles. Uh, those are all good to be mm -hmm. sure. But if you have only that, somehow you, you just have uh, a skeleton, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so it's not wrong per right. se, but, uh, you've missed it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You really have missed, yeah. uh, the pleasure, if you, you might say of, of the tradition and, and the ability to integrate the passions and the senses, mm -hmm. uh, as well. Yeah. So, uh, just, uh, a simple connection with this would be that you, you do want to own, not only learn to love Euclid, but to love, love a poem. Yes. And to not just read it and try to analyze it for its truth, mm -hmm. but to learn to read it so that it's moving, so that you, mm -hmm. you hear the sounds and you make the sounds that are going to that are going to move the imagination and the heart as well as the mind. Yes. Now, your comments made me think of something that I've taught at Thomas Aquinas College and Hillsdale College, and um, studied at, and now um, am teaching at the University of Dallas. And uh, a common theme that I see is uh, students getting together in reading groups, either informally or in some cases they have a formal event and they do something like read through the entirety of the Odyssey, you know, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> and they take parts and, and, and everyone gets into it. And yeah. it's, it's an, a way of drawing everyone together. Uh, and I know that uh, my daughters, uh, each at different times have been part of poetry reading groups. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a big part of uh, our experience at, at Hillsdale or my daughter's experience there as a student. Uh, just that the art of reading a poem with insight, with clarity, uh, to help the beauty come out mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and hearing it. Uh, that's part of the wonder of, of such groups that someone who's done that and put forth the work, then everyone benefits yeah. from it. Great. Uh, it's, it's different than chorals, you know, like it's singing with other people mm -hmm. or singing in another's presence, uh, but there's something like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then singing is a whole nother it passion. Is. <laughs> line, so we'll talk about that some other time. Um, yes. Okay. So this has been a great uh, introduction and first look at this, um, this, uh, this painting and, and about art. Um, Anything else on your mind these days, Jeff? Yes. Uh, so I think one of the things that I've been thinking quite a bit about lately is um, the, the way in which one great teacher, one great figure in the tradition uh, is a student of another. And uh, as, as you know, if you've listened to the previous episodes, uh, I'm, I'm currently in uh, a read through uh, the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas. And an audiobook. An audiobook, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and uh, that has, has been beautiful for uh, drawing things to my, my attention that I hadn't seen before. And another thing is Thomas's use of sources is really standing out to me right now. Uh, his use of Augustine and Boethius and the Pseudo-Dionysius, and we could just keep going. Uh, he doesn't do his work alone. 
uh, he he identifies and then has the proper attitude towards certain teachers in the past mm -hmm. uh, who have a kind of authority, mm -hmm. right? And he's very clear that they don't have the kind of authority the sacred scripture has, but they nonetheless have an authority and they can help him in his own pursuit of the truth mm -hmm. and his own work as a teacher. So I guess that's something I'm thinking about yeah. right now, mm -hmm. the way in which we're all indebted and um, the proper attitude that that I should have yeah. as a, you know a, a graduate school professor uh, in in my own work, my own intellectual life. Yeah, so. great. Um, and then I I'm going to add something very different here. Uh, Please, uh, this is a, a more contemporary political topic. Is mm -hmm. uh, um, the way in which uh, uh, one of the Virginia schools the, um, ended up being a uh, a locus of controversy right. in the in the last year, and um, I don't want to dwell on that too much. Except that, uh, I'll say this: I think that it's right for parents to be very concerned and intimately involved in understanding what kind of education their child is receiving, and when they are uh, in fundamental disagreement with it, to um, to react to it. And that is something I think that American parents have done over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. And sometimes they just say, I've got to pull them out altogether and do something new. Um, right. I think it's very important, critical for uh, this moment in American history that parents and other educators who are rejecting what the contemporary schools are doing have to develop a positive. They have, they have to, they have to think about, well, then what should we be doing with education. Um, and uh, I think that they're one of the wonderful things about what you and I have been involved in over the last 15, 20 years is we're involved in a movement where people, people, parents, uh, lonely educators have been working that out. And there are now so many opportunities to, to get a, um, an idea of what an excellent contemporary uh, liberal arts education can look like and be successful at it. And so you can stop just simply reacting to the bad and actually turn and say, wow, this is, this is an opportunity to pull myself away from it. that's hard. Right. But, um, but places like the Searcy Institute, mm -hmm. um, the, the Institute for Catholic liberal education, uh, places like this have shown ways in which the schools positively can do so much good. There's so much opportunity when you turn back to the traditions and then see what people have done with it. Yeah, to build on that, I, I think you're right. And I think that uh, one of the things that is, is marvelous about being involved in, in this movement today is that we're seeing it flower. We're seeing it grow and develop. And uh, anyone who's been involved for any amount of time will know that a great deal of effort has been placed uh, on the, the trivium grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and rightly so. Uh, but what's been raised the last 10 years or so is, well, what do we do about mathematics and natural science? Mm -hmm. uh, is, is there a way in which they can be approached that's informed by the Western tradition and that is in certain ways analogous to what we do with things like grammar and logic and rhetoric? And the answer is, well, yes, there is. And interestingly enough, it's incarnated or presented in this this painting this uh, this uh, image that we've oh, been discussing <laughs> yeah well so we we talked a bit about uh about euclid and the cluster around him mm -hmm. 
uh, right next to Euclid, uh, kind of over his shoulder, if you will, you see a couple of gentlemen uh, holding globes or, or, or something like them. Uh, the one with his back to us is typically identified as Ptolemy, Ooh. author of Almagest and, uh, a, well, what was the greatest work on harmonics uh, in the tradition. Um, and so these are example examples of uh, the, the quadrivial arts, mm -hmm. arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And, and they were perceived as being part of the foundation of, of this kind of education. So back to the point, which is right now we're reappropriating that. Yes. And that's exciting mm -hmm. to, to be a part of that reappropriation. And one of the things that the Arts of Liberty Project wants to do is to take a, a leading position in helping everyone to get together and to reflect upon how we can think with the tradition in terms of liberal education about and to, to bring it into a whole, right? To bring exactly. it into a whole like you see in this painting, like you see in the other the other paint, the other frescoes, sorry, in the yes. in the signatura. Um, yes. uh, we don't really want to let any part of the education just be, exactly. oh, we we're just doing that for the sake of tests or right. and ignoring the incredible formative opportunities that all of the ever every aspect of the school has. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is a actually a a little teaser into our next episode. We're gonna be talking about uh, Dorothy Sayers and the Lost Tools of Learning, which was uh, one of the big prompts for the revival of classical learning in, uh, in America. So, see Thank you. Yeah. Yes, see you then. <laughs> Resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at artsofliberty.udallas.edu slash podcasts. We invite you to share questions, comments, requests, and challenges via our email address, artsofliberty at udallas.edu. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. These podcasts are made possible by funding from generous benefactors like you.